Ah, I made it my own. In your defense, it took Arik two test episodes for me to like coach him through, get find a fact, and then figure out a way to say fun fact, and then the fact. Like he was like, okay, okay, <laughs> oh, okay, good. all right, okay, fun fact. So you know how. And then I'm like, okay, so, all right. You're, oh, me and Arik are cut from the same cloth, though, because I totally, I totally get it. I get it. I'm excited to have Tiff Arment, artist, podcaster, and lossless image format on the show today. <laughs> Welcome, Tiff. Hey, how you doing, Alan? I'm doing extremely well, and I'm very excited to share some fun facts with you and hear what kind of fun facts you have up your sleeve. Oh, I have quite the fun facts. That is very exciting to me. I f- They're very fun. They're the most fun facts you probably ever did hear for facts. That, that is fun. great. I <laughs> I feel like you would be the sort of person that would bring me not just facts, but ones that are fun, not to disparage the funness of, you know, radio quiet zones or historical 15th century literature or some of the other facts that we've Oh, had. no, I think, wait, I think I need to go back and get some funner facts. <laughs> <laughs> Fun fact, historically, Italian cuisine did not include the use of tomatoes at all because they only came to Italy from the New World. Huh, that is a fun fact. Yeah, I think of it as like a fundamental thing of Italy. What do I think of first? Maybe the great historical art, maybe, but honestly, for me, it's all about that tomato sauce. Yeah, it is. I think of a tomato. I do. (laughs) I mean, it's basically on their flag, right? It's, I think that's their. I think that's their flag. It's a, a just a tomato. On that's a, the red. That's the red part of the flag. Yeah. It's supposed to be tomato. Yeah, and then other uh, colors come from other ingredients. You yeah. might put best uh, pesto or uh, basil, right, for the green. Yeah, and some uh, buffalo mozzarella. Mm-hmm. There we go. Then, hey, yeah, it's right. It's right in the flag. I'm Italian. Are you actually? <laughs> oh, a little bit. A little bit Italian. Oh, that's cool. Cool. So we got some uh, relevant, we got a relevant expert on the show today. That's right. <laughs> that tiny sliver of Italian that's in there. <laughs> um, apparently, even when they brought tomatoes from the New World to uh, Europe, they were seen suspiciously because in uh, the 1500s, there was this book, uh, which apparently I, I came across in a couple things reading about sort of plants coming from the new world and there's this book called the general general history of plants and because it's from the 1500s history is spelt uh with an ie because uh, they hadn't fully settled down exactly how you, we spell these things yet um and the general history of plants was this book where this like botanist although they weren't you know, as you were in the 1500s a multi uh, polymath type character put together a book of all the plants and everything we knew about all of them and that was basically like the complete encyclopedia uh, and but it mistakenly identified the tomato as poisonous um, because it looks like a nightshade like a poisonous uh, nightshade so people for years only had them as decorations like a, like they, a little tomato plant <laughs> they don't last long enough no. for decorations <laughs> no how long does a tomato stay on the well i, I mean, mean obviously like a pumpkin is a better decoration because as a, a, a edible decor goes it lasts a long time yeah, pumpkin, I would say definitely on this continuum from decoration to edible. It's like mm-hmm. m- maybe two thirds on the decoration side. Not that you can't eat a pumpkin. Or like a decorative <laughs> decorative cabbage. I always find that that's really funny. Oh, it's decorative- like, let's just grow decorative cabbage, not eat it. Why would we eat that? That looks terrible. But no, let's let's decorate with it. <laughs> is, is that a thing that people do? Decorative cabbage? Of course it's a thing. It's fall. It's everywhere. Oh, wow. I, I can see the purple cabbage, maybe. It's pretty cool looking. I mean, not on its own. It's like growing somewhere, but it's still meant to be decorative. <laughs> yeah, there's in this uh, little investigation I was doing into 1500s and 1600s plant growth. Um, there's a lot of things that were like grown decoratively that we now think of like as food. So I guess the way that the nobles arranged their gardens was a little bit differently than the modern uh, arc, uh, mass agriculture. Well, in, over over in um, Trader Joe's, they have those decorative pepper plants. Oh, yeah. Right? It's also, there's also something kind of cool about a plant that's decorative that you could, in theory, eat from. That's true. Yeah. Apparently, the tomatoes also had a problem in the 1500s where uh, tableware was made from, like, leaded pewter. And so if you have the acidic tomatoes, then it Ooh. actually can leach the lead out of the forks that you're using so well, that's making like them that. poison as they thought they were right so they were uh-huh. kind of reinforcing the the <laughs> idea 
But eventually they started to kind of figure it out. And in the 1600s, they there's the first documented Italian tomato sauce. And in the 1700s, there's the first documented pasta with tomato sauce in 1790. And then in the late 1800s, the margarita pizza was invented in that kind of that sort of set them on the path that they are now, which is a 90 to 95 percent tomato sauce based diet. Thank God that they brought that tomato over. I mean, where would the Italians be? Now, Where would I be? It. Like, I, I feel like my most important food group is tomato sauce and things that it is in or on. So, yeah, I definitely enjoy that that kind of fact. There's apparently a few foods that we think of as like kind of fundamental parts of certain old world cultures, but that actually came from the new world. Like in the 1500s, there was no Irish potatoes because they came from the new world. They were also misidentified as poisonous, apparently. What? Uh, I know. Like what the, the least poisonous looking thing is just a potato, but apparently... It looks more like a rock than poison. Yeah. Honestly. You think maybe this isn't edible. I would totally forgive them for that. But yeah, there's no Irish potatoes. There's no Swiss chocolate. Chocolate also came from the old world. No Thai chili peppers. Chili peppers also came from the old world. Uh, or even something like English tea, like you think of tea as a fundamental building block of the British experience. Um, but it came from India. Like the only reason they it got popularized in the UK is because they were bringing it in from their colony. And it's not actually, you know, there's no native tea crops growing in England for hundreds of years. So look at all these thieves just stealing food from all over the place. I mean, it's not the worst I mean, the story of colonialism has much thievery, <laughs> and this this is maybe one of the more lighthearted uh, aspects of it. Um, but uh, yeah, apparently the, it was a huge influx in the 1500s. The uh, they called the Columbian Exchange, which you know, not to give undue credit to Christopher Columbus, who, for, as far as I can tell, was uh, an extreme jerk. But uh, the uh, exchange of all these uh, different varieties of of plants and stuff reshaped. Um, how uh, did all these different cultures kind of even saw themselves, which is kind of cool. I love that food can do that to a culture. Yeah, apparently it sometimes is done intentionally. Like, do, do you know Pad Thai? Like the Thai? Yeah. It's, ama- it's amazing, obviously. Um, pad Thai was, suppo- as I understand it, was invented intentionally as a cultural touchstone for Thailand. Hmm. Like... They they wanted a national dish mm-hmm. and they wanted to export that dish around the world. And so they like went through the country and they looked at all the various like dishes that people were making and they adapted pad thai and said, this is the national dish and then it will be spread across the world. And then it was and it is. And now there's a lot of people who when they think of Thailand, they think of pad thai and they have positive feelings. So you can do uh, food related diplomacy uh, it's an option it would be my preference over some of the other diplomacy that's happening right now i think that would be a, an improvement yeah we all just need to sit down to dinner and eat some delicious diplomacy i think that would be great mm-hmm. me too yeah so that's my that's my tomato related fact no to marinara sauce in 1500s italy although they did have cacio e pepe have you ever had cacio e pepe before uh, that sounds like fancy ketchup what is this <laughs> cacio e pepe is as as a a deep allegiance as I have to tomato sauce. The ketchup um, there of is, Pepe. There, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, Cacio, like C-A-C-I-O. Uh, and so Cacio de Pepe is a Italian pasta that is basically just lots of cheese and lots of pepper on pasta. And it is also very delicious. It doesn't have any tomatoes in it. And it, by according to the legend uh, goes all the way back to Roman times, like the times of the Roman Empire, when they had that as kind of part of their a staple of uh, Italian cooking for a very long time. So they they did have that. So at least we can um, we can fall back to if you're you're feeling old school, you can uh, keep an eye out for a cacio e pepe recipe. There's a really good uh, recipe for it in the Chrissy Teigen cookbook. If you've seen that, she has a good cacio e pepe option in there. Sounds delicious. I would like that a lot. I mean, large quantities of cheese is going to get you pretty far in my book. That's (laughs) that's my personal preference. Oh, that's good to know. So if I ever come visit you, just bring massive amounts of cheese. Yeah, although you may be stopped at the border on account of uh, Canadian uh, cheese customs. (laughs) Ah, I could pass. (laughs) You could find a way. Yeah, it'll be fine. You don't look very suspicious. I don't at all. Nothing suspicious here. No, just like large square chunks of... All right, so I guess it's turn. It's time for my fact, and uh, I'm coming at you with a 
theme of facts. Themed facts okay. for you. All right. Okay. A fact theme. Yeah. So all of my facts will fall along the same theme, which I was pretty excited about. So yeah, that's great. I, uh, my name is Tiffany, right? And so I'm going to tell you a few fun facts about glass. Okay. Now, I thought you might have been thinking, <laughs> is she going to talk about jewelry? Yeah. And, right? Is that where your brain went? That was my initial thought. Yeah. All right. All right. I'm good. I'm glad I tricked you because <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk about glass. And my parents, they named me Tiffany after Louis Comfort Tiffany, who was an artist and designer best known for his stained glass. And the fun fact is... Right. He is the son of the founder of Tiffany and Company, which is Charles Lewis Tiffany, the famous jewelry store. But what I wanted to talk about was about um, Tiffany Glass and what made Tiffany Glass unique is the method and style that it was produced under. And so this guy, Louis Comfort Tiffany, he is kind of an artist and he's going about his business, um, mainly fueled by his father's money. And he kind of came up with this cool new way of using glass and the impurities that are in the glass in order to make it look really cool. So what he did was he started using a whole bunch of cheap jelly jars in order to work with the glass and use its kind of opalescent features and that would show up in the cheaper glass because it was kind of pulled out of all of the expensive glass. and. Glassmakers were at the time, this is around um, 1880s, they were working with glass in order to um, pull out the impurities and make it look as clear as possible. And then it would get colored later for kind of the other version of stained glass that you would see over in Europe. But what this Tiffany, what, what Tiffany did was he decided to use all the impurities in the glass in order to make it like really cool and colorful. And he also developed a new way, a foil technique of adding copper and, and different things to the joining of the glass in order to make more intricate and delicate patterns. And so he started producing his own glass because he couldn't, he couldn't convince glassmakers to make what he wanted to make for his stained glass. And so he developed this cool technique and he um, created a business around it. And that's where Tiffany glass came from. And so that's a uh, kind of the beginning of my glass facts. They kind of trickle down into um, more and more of this like glass fact rabbit hole because <laughs> <laughs> I was going through and I found out all these cool things. And I was like, Ooh, tell me more about that. Tell me more about that. And so I kind of started out with this idea that, there was this guy that Louis Comfort Tiffany, who made Tiffany glass, is related to the Tiffany jewelry store, which I think is pretty cool. And I like being named after a man because it is um, you wouldn't go there in your brain. Yeah, right it away, wouldn't be your first guess. The name I'm, I'm looking at some of these uh, lamps and they're gorgeous. Like some of the things that this process produced, um, like colors and patterns and that it's interesting you say that like some impurities in the glass are like kind of designed into it in order to get some of these effects. Yeah. So the, a lot of the designs and the patterns were actually created through the company and there were, a, there was a division of the company, almost 300 people were working there at one point, And there were these single women designers. They were called the Tiffany girls, which again is, it's funny to think about, but they designed a lot of the floral patterns that you'll see in the lamps that they eventually became most famous for. So that's pretty cool that like around 1885 to like 1905, you have this group of single women doing design work when normally anyone doing any kind of work was always men. Yeah. Um, so that's, uh, and especially to pull out some of the more famous pieces were actually designed by women. Pretty cool. Yeah, that's cool. We'll link up some of those examples or put one actually up on the show art. If you see that in your podcast player and link up a couple uh, examples of these uh, lamps, as I um, have heard over the years, apparently the stained glass technique in the, that they, they had in the Renaissance um, era building uh, or medieval era, maybe um, that they, some of the churches have stained glass windows where in World War II, some stained glass got 
destroyed and they had to replace it with the best technology that we have in modern times but it's not it doesn't look as good as the stained glass from hundreds of years ago because every stained glass making technique is so uh, specific to the exact inks and exact processes and exact um, approaches that they use to make that glass that it tends to be this one artisan or this one small group of people make this stained glass and it's beautiful and then as time goes on it's like huh how do they make that a mystery it's kind of interesting that we can have these things that are so uh, intricate and so specialized that the process is just lost to history yeah, there's a there's a lot of different processes that come about and came in and out of fashion, and so there's there's uh, the first Presbyterian church over in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania has a large Tiffany stained glass piece. There they were kind of all over the place. A lot in New York. Um, the, he even redecorated the White House hmm. like 1882, and then it eventually got torn down and redone again back to the federal style, but. There was a time when it was all about, you know, kind of the details and the opulence of, of stained glass. I'm learning all like not to I don't know, stop me if this spoils anything, but I'm like looking at on the Internet now, seeing all these different glass types that they made opalescent gla- glass and streamer glass and fracture glass and ring model glass. And like there's so much expression they're able to get out of this stuff. It's really cool. Oh, yeah. And a lot of it was extremely toxic. So a lot of it is just like it's all about the the push and pull of a lot of the impurities or different um, oxides that are naturally found in glass, like pulling it out or or putting in something else that that extends it and, and brings out a luster or a color. It's a lot of um, technique and, and style. And that's why the idea of producing a beautiful, clear pane of glass ended up being really, really tricky, which I will talk about later. Huh. That makes me think of that fire gilding process um, that was famously in the podcast S-Town, for anyone who's listened to that, but this process that was used for hundreds of years, sort of like, oh, this is a beautiful way to uh, inlay gold or other things onto arts, but, oh, it turns out it creates toxic fumes in large quantities. Yep. Womp womp. And so that's another way we get beautiful stuff that we can't recreate because it's like, oh, we can't recreate this without, you know, dying. <laughs> the reason I couldn't remember the president's name who he redecorated the White House for, it's because it's Chester Allen Arthur, who I didn't even know he was a president. So good job, that, me. <laughs> that's got to rank on the like, if you were to do top 10 least memorable presidents. Yeah. Chester Allen Arthur. Uh, yeah, I, I think if you said that name to me and you'd be like, what is he famous for? I'd be like, <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> it was maybe an, an inventor or, or maybe like a fancy oil guy. Nope, nope. He's just a guy who refused to move into the White House until it was redecorated. So he commissioned Tiffany to do the redecorating and he uh, a very large stained glass piece in, in one of the entrance rooms. The one of the ones for some reason that's like in my mind because they're so forgettable is Rutherford Hayes. I don't know why that name is in my mind, but it's when I think of like forgettable presidents, it's like he's, so forgettable <laughs> that you've rem- that's not forgettable because it's like he sounds like he's on all my children or something. Yeah, like, like so made <laughs> <laughs> What did you? Oh. No one knows. We can't even bring ourselves to remember Rutherford Hayes, not my sister's cousin's nephew's son. Oh, uh, the, not the inheritance Back from the dead. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, maybe we'll have to get a Rutherford Hayes fact in at some point. You do now. You do. Now I do. I've, I've basically obligated now. Forgotten president facts. All right. So my next one is a coffee fact. I enjoyed the the top four uh, instant coffees episode. I mean, so I'm not sure if they're all available in Canada, but trying to on the quest to try and find a level up from uh, the Starbucks via, which is less bad than you would expect. The the sort of Verdana or what Veranda blend. Uh, um, Starbucks via, but I've been kind of on the mind for for uh, better um, coffee. But this is a, a Starbucks related fact um, that ties into that. So, fun fact: Starbucks makes tens of millions of dollars by investing the money that people keep on their Starbucks cards on the stock market. Really? <laughs> That's smart. Yeah, it never occurred to me because each person only has like twenty dollars on their Starbucks card, or maybe. Uh, $50. You don't mm-hmm. keep a lot of money on it. 
um, whether or not you're like a frequent Starbucks visitor or an emergency Starbucks visitor. Uh, most people have a Starbucks card, even if it's just in the app, right? Mm -hmm. um, but across all of the customers around the world, they have $1.6 billion of money on all the Starbucks cards that Starbucks just holds. Um, so the the kind of upshot of that is that this is $1.6 billion that Starbucks holds and they don't pay any interest to people for basically keeping this money on deposit. And if they were more like a bank, like if something like PayPal is regulated and required to do a bunch of things to keep money safe, if people are storing money with them, like if you give PayPal money, they have to keep it in like basically cash or a savings account, zero risk assets. They can't go invest that money in the stock market because they're obligated to be able to give it back to you promptly if you need it. Uh, but Starbucks cards are not regulated like a bank because um, they're not redeemable for cash. They're only redeemable for coffee. And Starbucks has lots of coffee, so they're good for that. Um, so apparently they just like invest in the stock market and just make large quantities <laughs> of money for basically nothing. That's so crazy because it doesn't I don't even think of that money as really existing anywhere because yeah. it's on like these little plastic cards in your pocket. Yeah, it's just kind of wherever. Hmm. Yeah. And apparently they also make like even more money than that from lost and forgotten cards. One hundred and fifty five million dollars a year just from you put the money on the card. And then if you lose the card, then they keep the money because what else is going to happen? Um, but that's you, you think of that as just kind of some little rounding error. But across all of their customers, it's like one of the larger businesses in America has <laughs> just lost Starbucks cards. Wow. Uh, I bet you that translates to a lot of different businesses. You mean in terms of like what businesses are $155 million a year? <laughs> well, no. What other businesses are, are, are making bank on lost like loyalty cards and well not loyalty cards but like lost gift cards that you're oh, yeah. walking around having I wonder how many lost bed bath and beyond gift cards per year yeah. that's really the business just just get into the card business have well lose it. there's a i guess there's a reason why like all these i mean i assume they have the same in the states is uh all the supermarkets now have all walls and walls of gift cards uh, near the checkout, like, hey, look at all these companies that you could buy, you could give money and maybe cash it in. See, that's why I, I never like giving gift cards as gifts, because I feel like they're just going to get lost and the person's not going to use it. I'd rather give them something that they don't like and have to return. Yeah, <laughs> there, it's definitely it's it's definitely a feel bad when you receive a gift card and you're like, oh, well, now I have to go to this store and I have to remember to bring the card and my trying to have, well, if if I had a different wallet or a purse or something like that, I would have slightly less resentment to, to cards. But when it's like, okay, I need to keep a Bed Bath Beyond gift card in my wallet for the next year, for next time I happen to go to Bed Bath and Beyond, nothing against Bed Bath and Beyond in particular, um, but I just don't go there on a weekly <laughs> You're basis. You're really targeting them, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, you know, they harmed me in my uh, <laughs> formative years and now I have a vengeance, but... Yeah, so apparently they um, they have the Starbucks cards are, cards are like a huge part of their their uh, their profit, and also they save on all the fees because when you use a credit card, every time you use a credit card, then Starbucks pays a fee. But if you use a credit card once to load up this Starbucks card, then they only pay that fee once, so they save also millions of dollars on that. Um, and it's like a, a huge kind of not a cash cow because it's really spread across the whole business but it's like a huge part of why they try to make their mobile app really good which is some my kind of guilty obviously i, I want to support the local coffee shops as much as i can and they do make much better coffee um but occasionally i'm in a hurry and going from somewhere to somewhere and maybe not in the part of town where i know where the best coffee shops are and uh, i can just like tap two buttons and then starbucks will automatically output exactly the okay coffee in the <laughs> configuration that i expect um because the app is actually pretty good so no wonder they put all the work in to make it actually pretty good yeah, the convenience sometimes outweighs the quality. Yeah, I mean, it'd be a little bit different if like the like they didn't have the they have like the blonde roast now. I don't know if you've tried that. It's mm -hmm. like the, I have. Yeah, it's substantially less bad. Like previously, well, because it's their other roast is just burnt. Yeah, it's a burnt exactly. roast, <laughs> less burnt. <laughs> hey, 
hey, look, they tried not to burn these beans and they succeeded in making coffee. Yeah, they just made them normal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, maybe one day they'll have it. I don't, my theory with that, I don't know if this is like a well-known thing or if this is just Alan's conspiracy theory. My theory on the burnt Starbucks beans is that they are so oriented to having the shots of sugar because um, like all of that like hazelnut flavor and vanilla flavor and stuff is mostly sugar and then they have the mm-hmm. flavors as well even the non they call them what zero not zero calorie what are they saying oh no sugar added ones are just like sucralose or whatever so they're super sweet regardless cool. of what you get to flavor your drink and those are so sweet that if it's still going to taste like coffee after you have three pumps of like hazelnut sugar corn syrup or whatever that you need like super excessive coffee flavor in order to balance that out that's my that's true. theory as to why they do that otherwise it would just taste like you're drinking a some milk and sugar yeah exactly it's not gonna taste like coffee anymore and so and also like it's good for them if you taste it and you're like oh wow this is really coffee i should get a little bit extra pay 50 mm-hmm. cents and get the hazelnut pump in there <laughs> <laughs> ew you make it sound so attractive I give mean, me that hazelnut pump i'm not trying to dis- you know, i'm not trying to shame anyone for their hazelnut habits but um yeah I'm, i also am slightly resent the flavor pump things at starbucks because i like the flavors but i find them too sweet especially because i get the more chill uh espresso in it but i find them like so sweet but i like the idea of like oh if you made this drink taste a little bit more like vanilla a little bit more like hazelnut i'm totally on board with that but not with that much sugar like if you could just get the if you say half sweet they just put half as much flavor in you're like no i want all the flavor but like half or less of the sugar and they don't care about me i'm like the only person in the world who wants that (laughs) no i'm i don't think you're the only person i'm with you because i always ask for half sweet and it's usually even that's too sweet like can i have a quarter sweet can you do a quarter sweet but then it's not going to taste like any hazelnut because it's or i don't know whatever you're you're true flavor of choice is um but it's not gonna taste like any hazelnut because it's only a quarter of it they're just going to like barely push it just like a few drips of still mostly sugar um so maybe we need to write them a sternly worded letter yeah we want flavor no sugar yeah you take that 155 million dollars a year of forgotten balances and invest it in a new flavor technologies flavor technology (laughs) (laughs) yeah once you now that you're done running for president yes well, forgotten presidents. <laughs> <laughs> One of many. So <clears throat> what I really want to talk about are some cool glass facts that led me down the fun rabbit hole that I want to talk about. Because my previous one was just kind of a little teaser. Yeah, okay. I'm now, excited. I'm ready for this. I mentioned that glass not that glass makers not wanting impurities in their glass and that they search for the clearest glass possible. For example, if you have seen glass that has kind of like a green tint to it, that is glass that contains iron oxide. So um, to achieve this kind of clear glass that they they use other things to balance that out. And what they needed to add was um, manganese. Uh, sorry about pronouncing this. It's a little I listened to the little person pronouncing it, but I still can't quite get it. That sounds it's, that sounds right to me. I'll give you a seal of approval. Manganese. Yeah, manganese. All right. That's good. Yeah, so manganese dioxide, and this is used as a decolorizer back when they were doing this. This is around um, the 1880s, again, like 1900s. Uh, The different techniques changed throughout the years. It was different in different countries, but generally this is what they used. But the manganese dioxide has a tendency to turn different shades of purple when exposed to sunlight or other UV light. So in an attempt to make glass colorless, as it first appeared when it was produced, the event- the eventual results were that in different outdoor applications, this glass becomes purple. That's awesome. You, you get so you get all the glass people come in and they outfit your very serious office or, or whatever yes. with clear glass and it looks good. And it's like, haha, over the next like few months, it slowly turns purple. Right. And this is kind of like all a very expensive process. And to get mm-hmm. clear glass was a very expensive thing. And you were kind of it was a pride, kind of a, a money thing of like, sure. oh, look how clear and, and beautiful this pane of glass is. It has no green tint to it. It's it's just absolutely beautiful. But then slowly, very slowly, <laughs> it starts to turn purple. And you can run across some of these very old pieces of glass. Uh, they're still out there. They were intended to be virtually color colorless. When I first came across it, I 
there is a glass doorknob in my parents' house that I grew up in. It was an older house. And one side of the doorknob was much more purple than the other. And this is because later, as I found all of this out, one side had more sun exposure than the oh, other. Oh, wow. So, a glass doorknob lasted that long. That was from the 1800s? Yeah. Yes. Wow. There, there are still a lot of glass doorknobs out there. Uh, we have a whole bunch in our house. I actually stole that particular doorknob from my parents' house, and it's now in our house. Because I just think it's so cool looking. And you would think that when you see it, you're like, oh, this was just purple glass. No, it was intended to be super clear. But as I'm finding all of this out, and there are numerous examples all over the place. Um, There's a particularly famous example of windows. There are purple windows in Boston, which belong to wealthy, very wealthy people who paid a lot of money for their beautiful clear glass, only to later realize that they are now a very deep purple because you can't get much more UV exposure than like a pane of glass on the outside of a house on a window. I'm and, looking at a photo of this and like in my mind, I thought it was like a subtle pearl, pearl, purple tinge, but this is really purple. Oh, they're very purple. I mean, imagine living inside of this and it's very purple purple sheen. And it eventually became kind of a status figure, which is really cool because later on, as people were realizing that these more expensive houses, that the idea of purple being the color of royalty. And there are certain people that even um, they went out and they wanted the desirability the the people of Boston were like, oh, get me those purple glasses because that's where the fancy people live, right? Like I want purple glass windows. But it wasn't quite the same as the originally accidentally purple windows that you see. It's pretty neat that the properties of glass that were intended to be colorless do this. Um, There's another weird example that kind of leads you down a bit of another fact hole, which I'll just I'll just lead into it. We'll just we'll just go. I'll, yes. do, I'll do double facts here. Fun fact: there are purple glass sidewalks in Seattle. Oh, and now you're like, what? Glass sidewalks? This seems like a terrible idea, and it kind of was a terrible idea because they collapsed a lot. But what they were were these vault lights, and the vault lights were meant to shine down into the basements of factories and other facilities before electricity was there. So they made these glass sidewalks, and they kind of had a, a sloping shape to the pieces of glass that are that are set into the concrete, and it was supposed to bring the light down. But again, the glass that they used, which was supposed to be very clear in order to see through, ends up turning purple and making it less bright down in the basements. A lot of these have been covered in by cement and things, but there are still glass sidewalks you can find in Seattle. Uh, There are also glass sidewalks in Manhattan, down in lower Manhattan and Soho. You can kind of see those um, down there. I walk past a few every day, actually. And they kind of stole this idea from ships, like on ships they were able to get some light from the upper decks down to the lower decks using these these like glass uh vault lights and so i thought that was pretty cool that even like there are some purple glass sidewalks out there which is a place where you would never think that glass would be because it it, it seems really poor of a choice yeah i've seen purple glass sidewalks in vancouver uh like like seattle not all uh not all times of uh, year do we have a lot of uh (laughs) bright daylight we can have some fairly cloudy days so i don't know if that was part of the theory as to why they wanted to put this extra effort in to try to get some sunlight into the the basements of these factories and things like that but i've noticed these purple like only the very old like the the, when they redo them they normally do them with like a just a neutral or clear glass but Mm -hmm. i've seen especially like kind of they'll be old and kind of broken glass squares set into the sidewalk and purple and i've seen that before and it never occurred to me that like like why is it purple like is that was that a design consideration that they wanted weird purple hue in the basement and it's like the answer is nope they just didn't even know that that would happen because it took long enough to happen that they put in some clear glass and next thing you know the factory workers are not only in a dingy basement but they are shattered in weird eerie purple light (laughs) yeah because it does it it changes so differently depending on the thickness of the glass depending on what sun is hitting it so it is hard to see it as a design consideration but i never even considered that that was a a process that it went through accidentally uh, instead of it just being purple already this is really cool i found um 
on an article about these uh, sidewalk um, glass sidewalks, that something that never occurred to me. My assumption was always that the underground uh, room just went under the sidewalk, um, and so that if you happen to be standing under where the sidewalk is, then you would see the light. Otherwise, it would turn it kind of be irrelevant. But apparently, at least some of them have like a prism, so that you mm-hmm. have the the light comes down into the sidewalk. And then it goes in that there's little like redirectors that basically reflect the light sideways. So then they come in in the basement, not just in through the ceiling, but they actually come in horizontally through the wall and they've been reflected like 45 degrees uh, or 90 degrees, I guess, um, which I'll put a little diagram. It's pretty cool uh, technology from the 1800s to try and make basements at least a little livable, which is something that I would not think they cared a lot about in the 1800s. But um, even nowadays, basements can sometimes be a little bit oppressive feeling. But that's a that's a cool attempt at technology, even if it went went a little purple over the years. Yeah, well, I mean, I think they didn't have a choice if they wanted people working in the basements. We kind of have to see at all. And if there's no electricity to oh, illuminate no, the basements, yes. <laughs> they need to use the sunlight. Uh, I uh, think that uh, it was yeah. actually pretty sad that they only uh, did get these little tiny squares of light <laughs> like right. refracting through through the sidewalk but here i am trying to give be charitable but no you're right they just had to because then otherwise the workers couldn't work <laughs> yep yeah i don't uh-huh. think we developed uh night vision quite like, like that we weren't we we don't um mutate quite fast enough to make that possible oh man <laughs> <laughs> oh, well that's a pretty that's a definitely cool glass fact well i have one uh i have one remaining fact prep for today fun fact dumpster was originally a trademark specifically the dempster dumpster by dempster brothers of knoxville tennessee (laughs) (laughs) your facts are fun (laughs) (laughs) this one i particularly enjoy i mean it's kind of like are dumpsters fun you'd normally think no but the fact that it's the dempster dumpster by dempster brothers of knoxville tennessee just rolls off the tongue it makes you want to like hawk it in the street in the 1930s it does. <laughs> I want to put on my Newsies hat and talk all about exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. It's incredible technology. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> the Dempsey Dumps are from Toxville, Tennessee. Exactly. Um, th- so this is something that I, you know, you don't think about dumpsters a lot. Or at least I don't. Maybe maybe you think about dumpsters a lot. Maybe you're here you're and there savvy <laughs> about them. Um, but I hadn't really thought about a world before dumpsters. So apparently in the thirties, uh, I don't want to think about a world before dumpsters. <laughs> yeah, no, you just kind of like, you immediately think you're like, Oh yeah, that would be a worse world. Um, imagine a world before dumpsters. <laughs> um yeah well you're you know you're moving garbage in small quantities instead of large quantities uh, and people need to do that so in the 30s they uh, invented a mechanically liftable garbage container um which is basically you know the core idea of a dumpster it is a big bin and you it has slots on the sides so that you can like lift it up and move it around um and that was super popular and they were originally selling these bins not with the idea of like there's no idea of a garbage truck necessarily but at least you could like move around the garbage and it was easier to deal with it um but that became so popular that they invented the dempster dump master which was the first garbage truck so it basically came already preloaded up with the two kind of slats so that it could drive up to the dumpster scoop it up and then lift it up as we are now all familiar with the, the standard way garbage trucks work and lift it up and dump all the stuff into the back put the dumpster back down and then it's like hey we have a complete system for people not needing to shovel garbage out of dumpsters um so the the trademark dumpster uh is now like long genericized but um the idea of it it was actually like a complete system um that revolutionized uh how people deal with garbage which i found kind of amusing that that was a a brand name as opposed to because you don't think of you don't think of dumpster as a positive term that you would have on a marketing flyer but no you don't but i do understand the need and the want for better dumpster like better trash technology really right well so you're in new york but not i guess you spend time in in new york new york in manhattan from time to time and with my experience observing garbage um systems in manhattan left a little something to be desired did not seem like they had entirely figured it out yet and i don't know what's going on no i was i was living i was living around and, and working in the city when they had a very large garbage strike at uh, one point uh. oh 
my God. <laughs> it's cool. You see very quickly how the system breaks down in those situations. I mean, the system doesn't seem to really work even when it's supposedly working. Like, I Oh, no, it's uh, working better uh, than you could imagine, because <laughs> when it stops working, you are horrified. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't. So I don't know, maybe this like not to excessively rat hole on garbage pickup in Manhattan. But it seemed when I was there, I've been there a couple times that it was kind of just like, yeah, we just kind of like put garbage in random places and it gets randomly picked up. Like it didn't seem like in, in Vancouver where we it's like, OK, every place has their designated dumpster and they have a specific day of the week that stuff gets picked up. And like you can't just like have a bag of garbage on the street. Uh, but that did not seem to be consistently enforced in New York. Well, the problem with New York is we don't have alleys. And that's another thing. If you ever see a footage of New York with alleyways, it's not filmed in New York because there are no alleys. Oh. It's always filmed in Vancouver, actually. Huh. So there's like no places for people to put dumpsters or trash or anything that's out of the way. So you either end up having kind of like a corner lot or a lot or an area that that things go into or it's just put on the curb in front of things. But everything is so packed in because there's no alley. So you mm -hmm. can't just like have a bunch of dumpsters taking up like a million dollar parking spots on mm -hmm. the curb of yes. Manhattan. Yeah, because all the buildings are right next to each other. And if there isn't a building there, it's a parking lot. So mm. mm hmm. No alleys. So you'll know now if you like see any kind of footage of like, oh, this is filmed in New York. Look at these characters enjoying New York City. And there's like alleyways. Yeah, that's total lie. I feel very like it feels very clear to me that I've seen characters in New York, especially at nighttime and someone runs into an alley. Yeah, that's not true. There's, there's, no, <laughs> there's no alleys. <laughs> hmm. Huh, that's that's a fun fact. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it's an actual fact, but I'm going with it. Yeah, well, it's a fact now. It is. You you need to look it up. Just <laughs> let's look it up quick. Does Are there alleys New in New York? York have alleys? <laughs> no, they only have garbage. Uh, confirmed. New York is not a city of alleys. And uh -huh. uh, one, the top result is, why are there no alleys in New York? Because everything costs too much. Yeah. Well, yeah. alleys. <laughs> um, apparently, there is like a non-zero number. Like, there are a handful of them. Um, oh, yeah. Especially in, where the streets end up having names and it's all swirly down there. Yeah. It's a <laughs> yeah, like lower in Queens, man. they have alleys. Oh, Queens doesn't count. <laughs> Sorry, Queens. <laughs> Sorry, Queens. <laughs> You're on a different island. I mean, come on. So... Fun fact. Uh, well, I guess it's not really a fact. I more have like mass, <laughs> I have like blocks of information as opposed to particular facts. Okay. Well, there's uh, facts. The facts are interspersed. Like there, there are facts go. in it. It just hasn't been factized into a. Ooh. That's okay. The, that's well, the verb, right? Yeah. 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 Factized. But that's valid. Right. That, that counts. Cool. Cool. Okay. So fun fact. There existed <laughs> this is gonna be good i'm just gonna mush this together something called depression glass it is a mass-produced machine-made glassware from the depression era in the united states and canada and these pieces were very unique because they were made to be mass-produced unlike glassware and and glass things previously which are very custom very expensive um so there are plates cups serving places, serving settings, all kinds of things. They came in hundreds of patterns and pretty much every color you could think of. They all had different names and they were all made kind of around the same time. Um, but the fun fact, oh, here we go. Here we go. The fun <laughs> fact, these pieces of glass were given away for free most of the time in cereal boxes and movie theaters as in purchasing incentives. Glass plate in a cereal box? Yes, glass. That seems plate. like a shipping nightmare. <laughs> I know. You right? can't even and get like the frosted <laughs> flakes to not turn to dust at the bottom of the box, let alone the <laughs> right. They have like mini wheat dust. You'd have glass, like and and um, or like maybe like a plate with um, like Shirley Temple's face on it or something like that. Like that was one of the most famous ones and some of the rare pieces. But the these pieces of glass became highly collectible in the sixties and. 
pieces that went for free or maybe even like a penny or an entire serving set that went for maybe 10 cents ends up being worth hundreds of dollars and uh, depending on the color the pattern the rarity it is um it's this whole phenomenon that they were giving away like plates like you would just walk into a movie theater and they'd hand you a box that had a full setting of glassware <laughs> for your house they're like here you go thank you for coming to the movie i'm so happy that there are people out spending money doing anything during because the great, it's depression. The great depression we have mm-hmm. more stuff than we can anyone will buy so wow and with it being machine produced it, w- it was extremely inexpensive and it was made to look very beautiful with the patterns because they had um lots of floral patterns or geometric patterns it was it was made to look very expensive but it was really just pressed in a factory so it was it was very very cheap stuff um and i know about this because my parents as they were dating they started becoming collectors mm. of depression glass mm-hmm. and they ended up actually in an encyclopedia of collections and oh, they wow. have like this gigantic gigantic collection of depression glass and um and that's hence why they ended up named me after a glassmaker ah okay you're right yes another glass related it all comes back around (laughs) it all comes back to glass i'm looking at a pink uh sunflower cake plate uh made of depression glass and it's like really cool like i can easily see why somebody who in the 1930s who didn't necessarily have the income to get crystal or fancy handmade stuff would see this and think it was pretty and (laughs) at the minimum worth receiving for free with your purchase of movie ticket (laughs) (laughs) or in your cereal box which i find i still find that really funny like the idea of just like reaching in and being like oh look i got a plate today oh i hope i get a mug tomorrow (laughs) i (laughs) there's so many questions come out of the cereal so like (laughs) Are they marketing? I guess cereal was less marketed to kids at the time. But like, how are they getting? How are they moving around? The cereal boxes must have weighed like twice as much now. I, I don't. Uh, <laughs> did they bubble wrap? Had they invented bubble wrap? Like, I don't know if it was. It was connected to the outside. I haven't seen a picture of it, but this is definitely the lore that that is fact. And especially um, some of the the kids servings and stuff were often also the serving sizes. Kids serving sizes were often. Um, associated with the cereal, particularly the Shirley Temple pieces, which were made out of like a cobalt blue glass with kind of a white etching on it, had um, Shirley Temple on it, and that those were really big. There is another cool little thing about the depression glass is that they also, um, there was a particularly mm, controversial kind that was made with uranium. Oh, and so no <laughs> it glowed. they did not of course they did oh. <laughs> if you i mean come on if you had uranium why wouldn't you make well, it course. with uranium put it in kids cereal boxes that sounds like yeah. a great plan yeah so oh, let's make no. some glass and foodware like you know serving plates and, and things out of um uranium you know uh added into some glass and eat off of that and and give it to everybody. And the only reason they stopped with the uranium glass is because uranium started becoming expensive. Oh. So they're like, <laughs> maybe this isn't a good idea anymore. Uranium's <laughs> too expensive. Oh no! Oh, <laughs> I'm looking at the box of. Uh, uh, apparently, oatmeal was a popular um, source of these uh, glassware pack-ins for cereal, and so you, they have like a cylindrical. Uh, package that has the glass in it and then the oatmeal packed around so glass is in the center and then the oatmeal is around the sides um and so that i guess keeps it more packed properly um i wonder how would you feel if you spent your hard-earned money on some oatmeal to feed your family during the depression and you get it and the piece of glass inside had broken that would be sad. I feel like that's got to happen at least sometimes because like even nowadays with very much more rigorous packing and and shipping processes, we have lots of that. So I would imagine that people are just because this is another trade profession. People are just picking up and slamming around these boxes. That's uh, not like a pallet loaded. I'm going to send you a, a picture of this oatmeal. Yeah, on. I do want to see that. That's it's funny. I end up having questions while I'm doing, I'm a terrible researcher because I have questions. I'm like, Oh, I wonder what that would look like. There's no way to know. And I just like, Oh, so this box of crystal wedding oats, definitely you would not be surprised that there was glassware in it. They were very, I've totally drank out of that style glass. My parent, my dad has those. Ah. (laughs) I know exactly those forest green ones. 
Straight from a box of Crystal Wedding Oats, quick cooking, new forest green glassware, a piece in each package, all caps. Actually, I think almost everything on this box is all caps. <laughs> no, no, wedding, wedding and crystal. That's true. You can't put the word wedding in all caps. It's just not right. Wedding! <laughs> oh, yeah. Very and there's exciting. other boxes here with different colors of, you can like pick what color of glassware you'll get based on the. Well, you have to collect a whole set because that was also, it's uh, kind of the, it's like a grown up, um, you know, action figure situation where it's like, oh, I got to get the cup, got to get the plate, got to get the bowl. Oh, and this is interesting. It looks like once the glass either became not cost effective or they figured out that the fragility of glass was maybe not super great thing to put in your food, um, that they moved. This is all looks like maybe 40s or maybe 50s. Um, It says one high quality plastic tumbler in each package on this later one. So still got that Uh, cylindrical. They went to the plastic. That's not as good. No, it's, it's not as fun to find. Yeah, I mean, and, and then also you have the little bit of the game of like, yeah, this, I can open up this oatmeal. I'm going to get a free glass. Is there going to be shards of glass in my food? Like you get to find out. <laughs> it's it's a double type of game. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's pretty great good. <laughs> Brought to you by Crystal Wedding. Uh, it's such a good name to have glassware in your oats. Yeah, that's, it definitely seems like the, the idea of putting glass in there came first. and then. The, yeah, they're going the, strong on the marketing. All the wedding and oatmeal, I don't know. Well, and it's not even crystal. It's just pressed glass. Yeah. Well, and then it's plastic later. <laughs> oh, man. A whole nother time. A whole nother world. Yeah. I mean, a, a world that we can't possibly imagine. No. But we can look at the packaging from and be fascinated. We can. Because now cereal doesn't even come with a toy anymore. No. You get nothing. You get nothing. Ima- imagine all of our children growing up without stuff in the cereal box. It's so upsetting. Oh, 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 no. This is great. Okay. Uh-oh. Apparently, <laughs> apparently <laughs> in 2019, you can still order a package of Crystal Wedding Oats from Walmart. I'm going <gasps> to send you this. What's in it? I want to read the package. Oh, it looks like there's a... Oh, there is a high quality tumbler inside. There's a high quality tumbler. <laughs> Oh, that's an great. An eight ounce high quality plastic tumbler in each package. Colors vary. <laughs> uh, oh, colors vary. That's even better. So it specifically says like, you don't know, you got to collect them all. Yeah. You can get different colored plastic tumblers, eight ounces. Oh, man. I wow. I can't believe they still do this. That is so cool. And it ridiculous. is. It's on the Instacart. It's right on Instacart. You get free delivery on your first order. Mm-hmm. Wow. This is awesome. <laughs> that is great. Okay, well, we'll link that up uh, if anybody wants to. Well, I mean, not if own. anybody. Of course, everybody will be immediately ordering their crystal wedding ones. Get your real, get your real uh, depression era experience by <laughs> color berries in every box. <laughs> real crystal tumbler made of plastic. Get it now. 